podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new Quantcast. Mauro Cesar here speaking today with Patrick Hagen. Hi, Pat. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, how are you, Mauro? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank you. So, Pat, you are obviously well-known in the industry, but just as a way of introduction, I should say that you are the managing director of Gorilla Science, which is your consultancy firm. And, uh, of course, your name uh, is associated with a number of works in quant finance that have been published over the years, but in particular with the Sabre model, the stochastic alpha-beta raw that you published almost 20 years ago with co-authors at the time, which is a model that is being uh, used uh, in pretty much every bank that prices derivatives. Uh, We just published a work of yours, uh, co-authored with Diana Woodward, which is tightly related to the Sabre model, and uh, it discusses how to value convexity adjustments. It's titled An End to Replication, and it's online in Risk.net, and it's in print in the May edition of Risk. Could you briefly explain the issue of convexity adjustments and uh, the drawbacks of the replication approach normally used to value them? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of instruments, um, uh, constant maturity swaps, um, cash settled swaptions, LIBOR and arrears, et cetera, et cetera, in which you have a, a convexity effect. Um, Convexity effects is once you boil it down, uh, because you have to evaluate a quadratic option. So basically, you have the regular option, which is linear, plus you have a quadratic correction. Um, a long time ago, um, about 2000, we invented a method of evaluating these quadratic options called replication. And basically, uh, how replication works is you write the payoff of the quadratic option as a sum of the payoffs of regular straightforward linear options. And then the value of the convexity correction is just a sum of the, uh, of the values of these options. And, and we thought we were quite clever to do it this way. However, replication turned out to have a number of drawbacks. Is to get the convexity correction accurately, you needed to use lots and lots of standard options, maybe price or strikes only five dips apart. And worse, the, uh, the, the silly thing wouldn't converge until you have very, very high price strikes, um, strikes of 12%, 16%. What this means is that if you use replication to price your convexity effects, you have risks on your books the options um, in the 12 to 16% range. In this range, um, options do not trade liquidly. In fact, prices are more of a convenient fiction because very, very little trading takes place at these extraordinarily high strikes. And so that was a drawback to the replication method that we were trying to uh, overcome. So what is the solution you and Diana are proposing and how did you develop it? Um, it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting. In, in the late 90s, Diana and I invented this method. We realized that we could actually write down closed form formulas for the implied volatilities predicted by different models, which surprised us. 
how were these in these convexity corrections to understand the quadratic options? We had to not only have closed form formulas for implied volatilities, but also for the convexity shift of the underlying. On these quadratic models, is an effective um, convexity shift. And we suddenly realized a few years ago that we could actually probably drive the closed form formula to the convexity shift. And that's the, that's the thing that held, other, held us up for about a decade. But once we figured that out and how to do it, so this, this paper is the result of that. So you mentioned the uh, convexity, uh, convexity adjustment uh, follows a quadratic function. Is that always the case? And what type of contracts is, uh, is actually the ones that um, your paper is directed to and is relevant for? The answer is, is the convection method is, is not always quadratic, but basically you start with the regular option that's linear. Then the correction to that is quadratic, and that goes on to cubic, quartic, et cetera, et cetera, higher order terms. Um, most of the value is in the standard option, and the convexity correction is a small correction to that. And so that's usually where people stop because um, trying to find a small correction on a small correction um, really, um, really, um, it is, it's, it's really negligible. Um, you asked about which contracts it's for, is it's for contracts like uh, constant maturity swaps, contracts in which the natural rate that the option's on doesn't match the numerator in which you're evaluating the option. I see, and um, uh, are you aware of banks and financial institutions that have adopted this approach? Um, yeah, what, what is the feedback that you received so far? Uh, the, the feedback's actually been quite positive, is these banks had used replication, and they say that this formula is giving them the same answer as replication, and it really simplifies their, um, their uh, software um, enormously. Um, so I'm aware of a few hedge funds and a couple banks using it. Uh, but since I'm a consultant, I'm not a, exactly allowed to tell you which banks use which, you know, the pricing methods that, that different banks use. I see, I see. I understand that. Um, now, switching uh, topic just slightly, uh, as you are an experienced volatility quant, I wanted to ask you about family models that RISC.net has covered extensively over the past few months, which is rough volatility. Um, did you look into it? Did you Do you think rough volatility has the right features to be plug-in pricing models? I, I, think, it's, I think it's very interesting. I, I think the rough volatility is aimed more at the equity markets. Um, but the thing is, it actually tackles something that's been sort of ignored for decades. And that's that um, the fundamental noise process driving uh, markets is not uh, Brownian motion. It's some other stochastic process, something that has much fatter tails and something that's much jumpier. Right? And um, with, with, uh, rough, um, with rough, um, what do you call rough volatility, uh, Jim Gatherall actually models this as being a fractional uh, Brownian motion, right? Which is very interesting. 
Uh, the, 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 the pros of this method is it's actually a much, much better model of what's really happening. Uh, the cons is it's more difficult. I mean, people use Brownian motion for a reason. It's easy, right? But uh, rough volatility, I think, is going to, or things like it, will, um, I think, be the wave of the future. But again, it's not going to be an easy path because it makes everything uh, substantially more difficult. I know you have been doing research on volatility models uh, that uh, on a volatility model that has the same principle in common with rough volatility models. Can you uh, tell me about it a bit more? Uh, yes, um, yes. Um, I've done quite a bit of investigation in this, um, and it turns out that the the um, the fundamental uh, random process that describes in rates is actually not Brownian motion. Instead, it's something called a levy flight. Now, levy flight is 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 a fancy word, but basically, if you sort of picture in your mind how Brownian motion, the probability distribution, spreads out like the square root of t, and the tails of the distribution are incredibly thin, they drop off exponentially. A levy flight is something very similar, except it spreads out faster than t the half and slower than t. And also the tails are very, very fat. In fact, they're algebraic. When we look at the fundamental statistics on, on asset prices, it seems to us that they match the, the, uh, the, the movement, the price movements match this Brownian motion, excuse me, this um, levy process uh, very, very closely. The problem is if you try to directly uh, create a theory based on a levy process instead of a Brownian motion, uh, you run into some troubles. And the first trouble is that no matter what you do to your portfolio, you can't get a, a, a risk-free portfolio no matter how you hedge when the underlying process is levy motion. And if you can't uh, if you can't get rid of the risk, then you can hardly have a risk neutral measure. So the thing is, you've got to uh, understand how to tackle that part of it. And it turns out the solution is not is not um, too difficult. Uh, you find out that if you use a standard delta hedge portfolio, then what happens is you don't get all, rid of all the risk, but you actually get rid of the worst part of the risk. In fact, the portfolio is not risk-free, but it becomes this, it becomes nice. It becomes what we call, it has, has only diversifiable risk. So you can recreate the theory by saying, okay, we assume that instead of all risk-free assets return at the risk-free rates, we assume that all diversifiable portfolios uh, exhibit returns at the risk-free rate. So basically, you're not paid for this diversifiable risk, only for undiversifiable risk. Once you do that, um, everything works just like it does in the standard theory. And the, uh, the, the only difference is that the tails you get are much fatter, and so the smiles are built into the theory. Have you looked at these models purely from a theoretical viewpoint so far, or have you had the chance to test them on actual, an actual derivatives book? Um, we, we have, we have. 
One of the problems with the, the standard modeling of, of the smiles would say stochastic, uh, a stochastic volatility model. It doesn't matter if it's Sabre, the Hesburn, but anything based on stochastic volatility is that in the markets, what you observe is when you have a very, very short dated option, say one week to expiry, you have this enormously steep smile. And if I want to, if I want to calibrate a stochastic volatility model to that, I need an incredible amount of stochastic volatility. And maybe my vol of vol is like 900%, right? But if I have a longer time to actually say a month, well, then you still have a steep smile, but it's not overwhelmingly steep. And maybe the vol of vol is only 400%. And by the time you get to one year to expiry, well, the smile is relaxed quite a bit and it's more of a skew than a smile. And maybe the vol vol is only about 60%. So the thing is, in any stochastic volatility model, in order to match the actual smiles you see in the marketplace, I need to change one of the model parameters, the vol vol, by an order of magnitude to handle things from the very short dated to long dated. The thing is, if I calibrate a levy-based model, what happens is when I calibrate the model to a one-month smile, the model actually works pretty well for the one week out to one year. And it doesn't work perfectly. You have to change the parameters by, you know, five or 10%. But that's better than changing it by the order of magnitude, a factor of 10. And so we've looked at that and we've looked at in the interest rate markets, we say, what's the real difference if you use a, um, a levy-based model instead of a stochastic volatility model? Well, besides making uh, calibration simpler, the one thing that comes to us is that the hedging is slightly different. See, in the Brownian motion models, in, 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 in any sort of a, in any Brownian motion-based model, the um, it's the theory says you can hedge all your risks exactly, right? In our model, the levy-based model, you can't hedge 100% of your risk. So what happens is if you're in a levy-based universe and you look at Black-Scholes, you're actually over-hedging. So if you're trying to replicate a call option as the price goes up, right, as the price of the underlying goes up, you have to increase your delta and the price of underlying goes down, you have to decrease your delta. In the levy world, well, you still have to increase your delta when the price goes up, but not as much. And when the price goes down, you have to decrease your delta. So basically, um, the hedging under in the levy world is a little bit lazier than it is under the um, in Black's world. And you actually uh, uh, save a considerable amount of hedging costs as you go into the short-dated regime. Um, a follow-up question on this would be, how easily tractable are they? As far as I know, levy processes have not proven popular in the industry, right? So despite being investigated at length in academic works, um, so as far as I know, not many banks have adopted that, right? So do you expect these processes that you just explained, yeah. uh, do you expect them to be given a chance and be potentially adopted by banks? Um I do, and at first we, we have to separate between levy flights and levy processes. Basically, any stochastic model just has jumps in it, it is, a levy, is a levy model. 
Well, these flights are a very, very special case because um, the thing that we saw in the markets is that, yes, there are jumps, but if you look at the jump size and the frequency the jump occurs, there's a tremendous regularity. So there's a tremendous regularity of the jumps which are exploited by the levy flights to, to make the, the mathematics um, tractable, right, and simpler. Um, the problem with straight uh, levy processes is they add too many parameters. So basically, you might have a stochastic volatility model that's alpha, beta, rho, vol, 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 that's four parameters. And then if you add jumps to it, you have to add at least three more parameters, right? How often do the jumps occurs, right? Um, what, what size are the jumps? And um, I can't remember the third parameter. But there's basically three more parameters to, to include jump processes. Um, that means seven parameters, and with seven parameters, it's hopeless, right? You can't you can you can't get a unique fit. Uh, any fit you get will be very slippery. Um, basically, the market changes a little bit. Your parameters even change a lot, uh, which tells you that you're overfitting the problem. Um, if you go to a levy flight, well, the levy flight has three parameters. One parameter is the intensity of the levy, levy flight. Uh, one parameter is the skew of the levy flight. And the third is where the um, um, where the levy flight is truncated. And those three parameters are exactly what you need to match the at the money volatility, the skew of the uh, of the volatility smile, and and the smile itself. Right. So with three parameters, I think it's a, a it's a fairly straightforward effort. The only real difference is that where you have um, uh, excuse me, where you have um, some subroutine calculating the, the uh, Gaussian density or the cumulative normal density, you have to replace that with subroutines calculating the density and the cumulative uh, distribution for the levy flights. I would like now to ask you a question about uh, the so-called London Whale uh, event that happened almost 10 years ago now. So you were at JP Morgan at the time in 2012. And uh, uh, obviously you were part of uh, the team that uh, had the oversight on what, what happened. Could you tell us what what happened in your view at the risk management level and what went wrong? Yeah, basically, um... Basic, basically, um, what went wrong is, is like many firms, our primary risks are based on value at risk measures. Mm -hmm. And like most firms, we use a historical value at risk. The problem with historical value at risk measures is they don't tell you what's going to, what happens if the market changes, right? It can only tell you what the, um, what the, your possible losses and gains were based on past events. And the market is always changing. In this case, what changed is the, the, um, the investment arm was, was um, heavily invested in credit derivatives. 
In fact, credit derivatives, as I'm sure your, your listeners are aware, they're basically finite term contracts in which you're paid a coupon. Um, and in return for that, if the underlying name is bankrupt, you actually have to pay for the loss of the, of the underlying security. So to a banker, these really look like synthetic loans, right? If I have $100, invest that $100 at LIBOR and enter a derivative, a credit derivative contract to get, say, 3.5%. So it looks like I'm making LIBOR plus 3.5%. And if the underlying name um, uh, goes bankrupt, then I have to pay off the loss, which looks, would look like the loss of a loan. Right? So it looks to a banker like it's a, it's a synthetic loan. And so the natural way for bankers to value these is say, okay, uh, just like any other credit, um, any other loan portfolio, you say, how much coupons am I taking in? And what are the expected losses I have to pay off? Okay. So that's, that's how it looks to the bank. However, loans are different than credit derivatives in one respect, and that's accounting. In loans, if a loan uh, hasn't gone bad, it's not impaired, then it's, it's kept on your book at 100 cents on the dollars. So the only time you have to worry about a loan is if it does get impaired, then you have to set aside reserves to cover any potential losses. Credit default swaps or artificial loans are not the same thing. They're market instruments and you have to mark to market, right? The, 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 uh, the thing that hurt the team was when you look under Basel 2.5, those are um, very, very credit intensive uh, deals to have in your books, the credit rivers, just so the way that the Basel 2.5 rules are written. And because they're very capital intensive, um, a lot of the market makers, a, a lot of the other banks in the field, they, they're capital intensive for the other banks too. So many, many banks started getting out of the business. So in the end, it was just uh, JP Morgan, at, at least societies traded, and four or five different hedge funds on the other side of the credit derivatives. And things were marked to market. Well, you know, the, and the market market means that uh, as many people have learned over the years is the market value of an instrument doesn't necessarily correspond to its, its uh, economic value. Because economic value is just the number of coupons divided by uh, minus the expected losses, which we had very, very well uh, modeled very well, right? Uh, but that has nothing to do with what the market value is. The market value is whatever the five counterparties say it is, right? Since we are price takers. So that was lesson one. Um, lesson two is liquidity, which everybody knows is before the Basel 2.5 was on the horizon, whenever we had these, what we call market dislocations, that's where the prices didn't make much sense in the market. What happened, there must have been 50 or 100 different credit derivative teams at different banks. And they'd see that and they swoop in on it and buy ourselves a profit from that dislocation but in doing so, they iron the dislocation out of the market. And then they bring the uh, value back very close to what its economic value is. Once Basel 2.5 is on the horizon and liquidity dries up, 
Well, um, <clears throat> uh, that didn't happen. These banks had dropped out of the markets, right? There's no 100, 100 different trading teams to take these dislocations of the markets. So it tended to remain in. So um, that was um, that was the the thing that we didn't realize. We didn't realize that the world was changing because of the liquidity. As liquidity dried up, well, we, we had our positions, right? And if we could have held on to those positions, yes, of course, eventually they'd, they'd make money because the coupons were more than the losses. But that, that's not the that's not the that's not the accounting the accounting business we're in, right? Can business say market market, right? So anyway, uh, and see so that was compounded because when we have this change of regime, right? It's not caught by the historical bar, right? The historical bar just tells you what's on risk, looking backwards, right? And that's the thing that um, we drum into everybody's head, right? You can't rely on just historical bar. You have to look at scenario risks, other measures of risk, because you know scenario risk just tells you how much you would have lost in the past. And it's uh, it's like um, if you imagine that you have a hundred blindfolded people and they're chasing rabbits on a field, you make the best mathematical model in the world for how many rabbits they'll catch every day. But if they take the blindfolds off. Well, your model, your model sucks, right? Will have nothing to do with the uh, reality of how many rabbits are caught. caught. So, w- what do you think are the lessons uh, that are to be learned from yeah, what happened uh, nine years ago now? And most importantly, do you think those lessons have been learned in the industry today? Yeah, the the, the lessons of one is um, <clears throat> uh, don't rely on historical bar. Um, although people know that lesson, I don't think it's been taken to heart, uh, just because it's much simpler to have a number and say, this is how much, you know, risk I have in my book, right? It's a very simple, you know, concept and sometimes simple when data were accurate. Um, the second, the second, the second, the second one, I hope we've learned and the second one is. You can't ever let your books and your positions get so large that you can't liquidate them, right? You have to look at how fast you can liquidate them. And you can't use his, his, what the liquidity was in the past. You have to look at what is liquidity right now, right? And whenever you're in a position where you can't liquidate your positions rapidly, then you don't own your positions. Uh, your positions own you, right? And, and that's the second lesson, which I hope people uh, learn, right? But we shall see. We shall see indeed. indeed in fact, there are exposures in the market that uh, every now and then blow up, as we've seen in uh, the past few weeks with uh, uh, Archegos and the banks involved in that. Well, that, 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 that was... That was that was the um, event I had in mind because the positions are large enough they couldn't liquidate them um, without cost. Exactly. So actually, w- big question here, but where do you think uh, the risk to the financial system is now? I think there there there's um, the risk to the financial system is probably hiding in hedge funds. Um, 
currently banks are regulated heavily enough that there's very little obvious risk taking within the banks, right? Um, in fact, uh, there's very little appetite for risk to the bank because of the incredible amount of, of, of paperwork and number of boxes that be checked to take on reasonable amounts of, of risk. So basically, the banks are operating most as as um, as uh, market makers, intermediaries of risk takers, which maybe maybe that's their correct um, uh, business. Um, not for me to say. However, that means that the that a lot of the expertise of the field is now in hedge funds, right? And so hedge funds, they they have a big advantage over banks. A hedge fund doesn't have to defend everything, right? If a hedge fund can find one idea that makes money, it can exploit that one idea, right? The difference to that with a bank is a bank takes market makers from many, many different customers. And so I have to understand the risks in all these business lines, right? And there's a chance that they uh, they miss something. So the problem the problem is you have hedge funds taking risks and sometimes enormous risks. If these risks aren't understood by the counterparties, the banks, that means that the hedge fund um, uh, makes uh, if if a hedge fund blows up or or makes a mistake or is taking unreasonable amounts of risk on board. It's it's uh, it's counterparties. The banks might not know it, right? And that means if the hedge fund blows up, um, then, then the bank has to take the loss, which is what happened in uh, I think it was Arpeggios. Uh, I think um, uh, I think the pronunciation is Archigos, but yeah. Um, oh, oh, that's right. We, that's we, right. we are talking about that that hedge fund. Yes. Um, I'd like to conclude this uh, podcast by asking your future project. So you you just uh, uh, told us about uh, your your research on Levy Flight. Uh, what else is um, is in your works? Well, I've been actually looking at cryptocurrencies because of all the products, cryptocurrencies are very interesting because they're a pure trading product. You know, there's no central bank that's intervening, et cetera, et cetera. So the thing is, the statistics that you see in cryptocurrencies, I think, represents the statistics of trading in general, right? With nothing else going on, the sort of pure form. And it's actually, it's been very interesting to actually compare the uh, the distribution of price changes of the cryptocurrencies with the levy distribution. And uh, it's a, it's amazingly good fit because again, the levy distribution, you know, doesn't, it doesn't say there's no jumps. What the levy flight do is it says there's a, there's a orderly relationships between the jumps and the jump sizes, excuse me, the jump sizes and the jump frequencies. So um, that's, that's actually been very interesting to sort of explore this, this new space. I see. So you think cryptocurrencies are actually an area where levy flight as a natural application? Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, levy flights were originally um, they they originally uh, uh, matched to the markets. I think in the cotton markets and commodities, right? Which is also can be a very jumpy uh, market. Um, we've seen them in in rates. 
we've actually seen in equities, they seem to describe like, for example, the S&P 500. There's a famous paper put out in the mid 90s showing how well the levy flights match with the uh, S&P 500. And now in, in, um, in uh, cryptocurrencies, they seem to match as well. Um, and it, but again, the data, the data is preliminary, so it's work in progress. I see. I'll stay tuned and see the results then. Um, Pat, thanks very much for uh, talking to us today. It was very, very interesting to hear from you. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening.